anytime you ever go outside, you have a chance of getting lost. It's, um, sometimes you can get lost in your own house, but it's easier to get lost outside. Um, just normal. Um, when, I was, uh, when I was hiking, I want to show, um, show a picture of a blaze. All right. All right, so this is, well, can we do the next picture first? There we go. All right, so do you see that marker? So when you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, that's called a trailblaze. So you get, you know, idea, maybe they were trailblazers, I don't know. Um, but, thank you. <laughs> um, so it's about two inches wide and, and six inches long, and that's how you know you're on the trail, because when you're walking along the way, you want to make sure you're on the right trail. Um, on the Appalachian Trail on the East Coast, if there's, uh, the main trail is with a white blade, there's a blue blade, like a side trail, over to a waterfall or something like that. So you walk along, and it should pop up every hundred feet or so. So that's the kind of thing. You're going along, you want to have a reassurance that you're going the right direction. Make sure you don't get off the trail. But what, there's a big problem whenever you run it. Can you show that other tree? All right, so this is a beech tree. And notice what's kind of unique about the bark is it kind of white, splotchy. Sometimes the splotches are about two inches wide and six inches long. <laughs> and you're walking along, and you're like, you know, looking for a turn. It's like, oh, the trail's going this way, I'll go along. And you end up on a game trail, um, which is a trail that's in the, up, up in New England. It's game trails are made by moose and bears. And so they're pretty wide, and they're a good, it's not these little white-tailed deer game trails that are very narrow, that only like, Skinny kids can follow. It's a good, it's a healthy, this is a game trail. And you're going along, and then, and then you run out. It's like, wait, where was the last time I saw something? And you get, you can get, it's so easy to get lost. In fact, um, so uh, scholars have studied search and rescue groups to see what are the most common people who are lost in the woods. Um, and so there's five categories. One category, very young children. <laughs> Ages two to six. And so these are, these are people who get lost. Children aged two to six are likely to be distracted by something and just start walking off. But they don't wander too far from the last place where they're seen. So that's okay. So search and rescue get calls for children a lot, but they're usually not that far away. The next category, older children, six to 12. <laughs> it, can be, it says it can be a dangerous age for children because they have begun to develop cognitive maps of an area. They have a, a rough idea, but they don't have the skills to maintain direction and distance. They realize they're lost, and they panic, traveling a circuitous path in an attempt to find safety, thereby making finding them difficult. <laughs> the next category, third category, of people who get lost, hikers. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes hikers will accidentally follow game trails and lose, and lose directions or other members of the party lag behind. Um, often one person carries a map and they're, not, they're way out in front because they know the area. Another group that often gets lost is hunters. Hunters become engrossed in following game or following a deer or they're, they're tracking someone like, oh, I can track them. It won't take very long. And four hours later, they have no idea where they are. Um, and then the final category is people suffering dementia. And so mainly Alzheimer's victims. Are, these, are, these are the five categories of people who search and rescue teams most often have to find and have to discover. Um, one, of, 
one of the unifying characteristics of those five categories, small children, older children, hikers, hunters, and people with dementia, is um, none of them have a really easy time of admitting that they are lost. <laughs> Especially hikers and hunters. Those are the worst. <laughs> they always know where they are. They can't admit that they are lost. My, my brothers and sisters, we are starting a new series for this season of Lent called The Lost Art of Finding Our Way, of, of looking at what are the ways that we, how can we find where we're going in this life? How can we admit, um, how can we find God in this life? And the first important thing that we, we always have to remember, the only way to be found is that if you admit that you are lost, if you admit that you need some help, if you're trying to find something, you have nowhere, you know, the age before phones and you had to go inside a store to ask Directions, there are some people who would never, ever do that. I was one of those people. <laughs> but you, don't, you can't be found. You just drive in circles and circles and circles. You're not going to get to where you want to be. So we start today with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus goes down into the wilderness. The wilderness is um, in the southern part of Israel. So if you imagine, imagine Israel is like the cross. And so the wilderness is down, down there. It's on the, the distance between Jerusalem and the Red Sea. It's pretty desert. Even now, there's not a lot of people who live in that area of, of modern Israel. It's called the Negev. Negev is a word for desert. It also means south in Hebrew. The word for desert and south are the same because everybody knew the wilderness was in the south. Why does Jesus go into the wilderness? Why does he go into the desert? One of my teachers uh, once wrote that Jesus went into the desert to be subjected to Israel's testing in the wilderness. If you remember the story of the Exodus, that after going through the Red Sea, Israel, the people of Israel travel through the desert. They don't do very good on God's tests. They travel for not 40 days, 40 years. It's quite, quite a journey. This testing, my teacher goes on, Israel proved her inability to live faithfully despite God's good gifts. God offers food, offers manna, offers water, offers the, the doves. The son, however, will be obedient. But we cannot overlook the cost of his obedience. His obedience depends on his trusting of the father's faithfulness to Israel through the scriptures. Jesus, the faithful interpreter of Israel's scriptures, teaches us how to read that we may know how to resist the devil. The story of the temptations is a, it can be a very challenging because it's this kind of, it's this Bible, imagine this Bible study after you haven't eaten for 40 days um, and someone comes in to argue with you and they can quote the Bible at you. That's what the devil does. The devil quotes the Bible at Jesus every time. The first temptation, make these stones Make these stones to be bread. If you have not eaten in 40 days, that may seem like a pretty big temptation, right? It's like, oh, if I could just do that, I could settle one thing going on in my life. At least my belly would be okay. It's an honest temptation. The temptation to control our surroundings. The temptation to think that, oh, if only this one thing changed in my life, everything would be better. If only I got that job, everything would be better. If only I didn't hear that news, everything would be better. That's the temptation presented to Jesus. And yet, what, 
The reality is that God has already offered this life to Jesus, already offered this life to us. The response he makes, uh, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, that we don't need this thing or that thing in order to be satisfied in this life. That God has offered it freely to us. The next temptation is the devil takes Jesus to the tallest point in the temple, to the very top, and says, jump from here, for your angels will, will lift you up. And Jesus responds, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is a, a temptation to, to, challenge, to prove God's power, to prove our own power. If only, God, you did this thing, I would believe in you. If only you did that, I would believe in you. The ways that so often we can put God into this box of our own imagination to fit. It's like, okay, God, you have to pass this test so I will believe in you. You have to show me this thing or else I'm not going to do it anymore. When in fact, God has already offered love and forgiveness and mercy to us freely. And God has not tested us. God has not asked us to jump through the hoop that we ask God. The third temptation is to go to the top of a mountain and to receive praise from the whole world. To have the whole world bow down for us. The temptation to be praised by everyone. Gosh, that'd be nice if everyone praised me. Wouldn't that be swell? Um, this, this continuous temptation that we have today, we have with celebrity culture, we have with all these kind of things, of people striving to be loved explicitly by others. And the amazing thing about this temptation is, again, it happens right after the baptism. It's right after. If you remember the baptism account, Jesus goes to the Jordan River, and John the Baptist is, is baptizing people, and Jesus walks up to John, and John is like, I'm not fit to untie the thong of your sandal. But Jesus says, you must be the one. And so John baptizes him, and the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes down and descends, and a voice from the heavens ring out and says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus had just received praise from God before this temptation. And I think that's, that's the heart of it, is God has already offered praise to Jesus. God has offer, already offered praise to us. The God of all creation loves you and forgives you and wants a full life for you. And yet... As I say in pastoral counseling sessions, it wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't tempting. <laughs> Think about it. It's, you know, it's, it's so super obvious and kind of silly sounding, but it's super important for us to remember that my temptation is not your temptation. The things that tempt you to, to harm others, the things that tempt you for pride and for hurting other people are not the same things that tempt someone next to you. And we, so often, as a society or as the history of the church, have tried to label temptation into these kind of boxes. These are the things you have to worry about. When in reality, it's like there's so many ways that we can stray from God's love, especially when we center our world on ourselves. And we forget the gifts that God has already offered to us. When we don't admit that we are lost and we're trying to go in circles. and say, no, I can figure it out. I remember seeing that blaze back there. I remember seeing that. No, that's a, that's a place. That someone put that there. The paint is a little scraped off. I know where I'm going. I don't need any help with this. 
That's the root, root of all the sins, root of all the destruction, is this idea that I can handle it. I've got it all here. And then, when the fox and the devil comes and say, why don't you just like a nice loaf of gluten-free bread? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It's not too bad. It's good. There's zero carbs. It's fantastic. <laughs> Wouldn't that be helpful for you right now? The thing, about, the thing about the devil is it's important to recognize that the only way the devil can work is through tempting. There's no power beyond the temptation. That is not to suggest that the temptations of the devil are any less destructive to us. It doesn't mean it's less destructive. It just means that it doesn't have ultimate power over us. Just to say something is, is a temptation doesn't to say it doesn't matter. But we must remember with these temptations that each answer that Jesus gives, each answer that Jesus gives is grounded in the gracious and generous love of God. I think about um, the shepherd with the 100 sheep and one of the sheep gets lost. And so you have the 99 sheep who were listening and were obeying and who went to church every Sunday and did all the things they showed up. And then there's this one over here. This boat kind of stuck in the brambles, but I think about someone who's like, not only are they lost, what if they like are worried about going back? What if sometimes sometimes the lost sheep knows the way back, but they're worried about how those people are going to react when they return? They don't know what kind of welcome they're going to get. How it's like, I don't know, I know I know the path home, but what if they make fun of me? What if they laugh at me? I didn't need to get off the trail. I thought it was a place. I thought I was following along. I thought I could go this way, but I'm way over here. And the fact that God goes and takes the sheep home. This is what happens with the prodigal son. The next parable that Jesus says in this set is that the prodigal son goes off. He lives prodigiously. That's what prodigal means. It means prodigiously. You spend all the things. You do all the stuff. And then, and then he He's, he's, eating, he's working, he's eating with, working with pigs. He realizes the pigs he's working with are eating better than the servants in his father's house. But he is still ashamed of going home. He doesn't know if he can, he can make it home. Sometimes our, the barriers for us to get home is not that we don't know the path, but we don't know what's going to happen when we get there. And we're worried. And maybe sometimes there's good reason for it. Maybe we've seen in the past people come back and not receive the welcome they deserve. So the, the prodigal son, he goes. His plan is to say, maybe, you know, I'm not his son anymore. I know I'm not his son anymore. I know I said he was dead and I wanted my inheritance. I know I messed up, but maybe I can just be a servant. Maybe my, I can just go home and my dad will give me a job. I don't want anything special. I just, I just want a job so I can eat as good as a pig. And instead, what does the father do? Not only does he welcome him, not only does he run towards his son. He has a feast. He celebrates extravagantly the generous love of God. God has already offered this love to you. That you are welcome home. That it doesn't matter how you got over there. The father doesn't say, you know, I will welcome you home, but you should watch your money. You should be careful about your finances. You need to be responsible. That is not a lecture that is found in the Gospel of Luke. 
It could obviously be, if that took place today, you could always see that, you know, imagine like Victorian retellings of the prodigal son that all have to do with like being, being responsible with his money, as opposed to the gracious love of God. The point is not how wasteful the son was. In many ways, as Henry Nouwen says, we are all the son. We are all the prodigal son at different times in our life. We are all wasteful in different degrees. Maybe we didn't blow all our money, but we've all been in a place in our life where we have wasted what had been given to us. And we need to admit that and see ourselves there to receive the gracious gift God offers. We need to admit those times that we are lost and that we are far away from God. Now, just to, just to follow up with being lost, there are a few, few ways that people are found. This is just when, again, those young children, older children, hikers, hunters, and those with dementia. So these are the kind of methods that they try. One is random traveling. It's a pretty, pretty self-explanatory um, method. If you just like, much like a random walk, people go a loopy path. This is what school-age children usually do. They kind of go around in a circle. There's route traveling involves trying to find a trail. Direction traveling, trying to maintain direction with like a compass or orientation or a landmark. Route sampling. A lost person tries to establish and maintain a base of operations. So they have a place, I know this spot, so I'm going to just kind of go off around here. Direction sampling, the same way with that. View enhancing, a person tries to climb to the highest spot that they can in order to see. Or backtracking. Starting, since the starting point of a trek is usually known if a lost hiker or hunter can find their way back. So all these methods, if in real life, people who, who end up lost, if you ever end up lost on a trail, one of those ways of finding your way back. But when we are lost in our lives, we may be in our home, we may be at our job, and we may feel lost in ourselves. And we may know someone in our life who feels lost, who feels like they do not know the direction. They may feel like they are in the desert, they are in the desert, and it's been 41 days, or 42 days, and they haven't eaten, and they don't know where the next bite is going to come. Our world is full of people in these places. Maybe many of you are feeling like that today. That our hope, though, is not that we are going to pull ourselves out of the desert. Jesus, Jesus, didn't, Jesus didn't even pull himself out of the desert. The angels came at the end of the temptation, God's messengers came. And today, my brothers and sisters, I encourage you to see yourself as messengers of God as well. Angel literally means messenger in Greek, angelos. It's a messenger. Angel doesn't mean big, wingy thing flying from heaven. <laughs> it means they're they are beings with a message, beings with a purpose. And I think in many ways, God uses us as messengers. Messengers of peace, of grace, of hope, of understanding of forgiveness. Messengers of those people who feel like lost sheep but are ashamed of coming back to the pen. Messengers to go out and say, it is going to be okay. You are loved. You are forgiven. We are going to welcome you. Don't worry about that person over there who's kind of snooty. Don't worry about that sheep over there. They can't control you. Or as, as we say to Dominic, haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. You can't control it. But you are loved. God loves you. Maybe your position right now is to be an angel, to go out to someone who is lost. Maybe your spot right now, though, is to admit that you are lost some days and that you need some help. In this season of Lent, in this time of preparation for Holy Week, 
Accept the forgiveness of God. Accept that sometimes you may not have it all figured out, but God's love is there for you. God's gracious and generous offering is there for you. You don't need to try and turn the stone into bread. God has already offered you the bread of life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.